Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hi, this is Colin. I wish I knew what to say to you right now that would help you prepare for the show that we're about to do. But the problem is I am actually unprepared for the show that we are about to do because it's an ask or tell me anything show, which means that I'm not allowed to prepare. The only way in which things come to the surface and get discussed on the air would be if you were to call in. The number is 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. You can do that right now. There's really no limitation on what the topics are. I think we like them. Kind of obscure, playful. Not so many hot takes. But you do you, because it's that kind of show after the news. Once I was sappy, a sap I was once in a... Once I was happy, but foul I'm lorn, a lorn I'm foul now. A scion line, a nylons are free. No, no. Now I'm forlorn. Like an old goat. Oh, no, not a goat, that's an animal. <laughs> like an old coat that is tornered and tat, a teetered and tummed, a tattered and tip, a tap with a toupee, a rip. Left in this wide world to sleep and to snore, uh, to weep and to mourn. Be treated by a jade in her means. No, be mean by a trade for some jeans. I'll be jean by a teen with some jade. I'll be trade by a maid in her teens. Oh, he floats by his hair. Oh, not by his hair. That would hurt. Speaking of hair, a man came up to me today and said, Doodles, your hair is getting thin. And I said, Well, who wants fat hair? Can't they kill her? I can't listen to that anymore. I'm going to start laughing. I actually have started laughing. I just I want to see that that's a Spike Jones in a City Slickers recording. However, little point of clarity: uh, this would be the absolute definition of trivia. The person singing, uh, if that's the right word, is Winstead Sheffield Glendening Dixon Doodles Weaver. All right, and so here's the real. Here's the real. I, I wouldn't even call this trivia. This is something more granular than trivia. So there's a movie, an Ian Miller movie called Reveille with Beverly, I think it's called. Uh, and Doodles Weaver has, the guy who just was singing that song, he has an uncredited role where I think he works in a record store. And every time, time Ann Miller comes back to the record store, she bumps into her or something and he drops these huge boxes of records. That's like his whole role. I don't even think he has any lines. He just drops things. Uh, All right. So that's by way of welcoming you to the show and indicating to you how completely randomized our approach to information might be. And to tell you that the number to call today, it's ask or tell me anything. There's no guests. There's no topics. There's no nothing. Is 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. And so let us go to the phones here and see what is going to be talked about. (laughs) Okay. 
I don't, I'm just, I'm always a little nervous when we get started. So here's Ed from East Hartford. Hi, Ed, you have the floor. Hi, Colin. Uh, good afternoon. I, uh, my wife and I attended a wedding uh, this weekend, and, you know, we're sitting around at the reception table, and um, I'm kind of aging myself here, but, you know, all of us began to talk about some of the music venues in the greater Hartford area, whether it was like Cell Block 11 or the Agora Ballroom or even Matt Murphy's, but we finally settled on clearly our favorite amongst the table at the reception was, I don't know if you remember, Lloyd's, which was on Washington. And it was just, it was kind of like an upscale place where you could go and see some of the most extraordinary musicians. I mean, saw like Taj Mahal there and Leon Redbone. And I'll never forget, I shared with the folks at the table, you know, I saw Wynton Marsalis there. And at that time was a young teenage Marcus Roberts. Mm. And I was, I mean, just made my head explode when I was there. And uh, you know, we were all talking about all of our different favorite uh, concerts that we had seen at Lloyd's. It was it was a very interesting. But the the guy that owned the place was a guy named John Chapin. That's right, a Hartford police officer. And knew him well. Has, oh well, there you go. So, yeah, no, I knew John really well. He also ran Shenanigans. That was also his his other oh, restaurant. Maybe yeah. maybe maybe the better known one actually of the two. But yeah, Lloyd's is a great venue, particularly for the kind of music that you're talking about, jazz, blues, yeah, especially jazz. They, they had a lot there. It was at 60 Washington Street, I think, kind of in the uh, lower level of that great big huge office building. Which, by the way. I, I think my son and I, he was a young boy at the time, we actually drove downtown on the Sunday morning that they imploded that building. You know, it's really, you should see that at least once. You know? <laughs> it's, yeah, it, it, no, no longer exists. I was just wondering if, if whatever, if, if you remember it as fondly as I do. Yeah. If you had a, uh, uh, an interesting uh, or memorable uh, show that you saw there. I mean, cause sometimes when I tell people, I actually saw Wynton Marsalis there. They were like, get out of here. And I'm like, no, I, I swear to God, it was that kind of a place where these extraordinary you know, musical moments would happen. You know? Right. I think that, you know, the, maybe the larger point here is that in cities like Hartford, I mean, New Haven has managed to fight this off a little bit, but in cities like Hartford, you used to have this very robust kind of mid-sized club scene where, in fact, yes, you could go see a really, you know, fairly prominent jazz artist who was on tour and maybe, first of all, A, wanting to play clubs. A lot of jazz musicians do as opposed to, you know, maybe a mid-sized venue. You know, but often maybe an act that couldn't really fill the Bushnell. And I think in the era of Lloyd's, I'm not even sure the Bushnell had the smaller venue, the 750-seat building. Uh, But, you know, and, and as a result, there was in downtown Hartford and lots of other cities like it, a much more robust scene where yeah, there were sort of smaller clubs, 36 Lewis Street, shenanigans, things like that. Uh, Lloyd's is maybe a little bit bigger or at least fancy enough so that they could charge you more money for your ticket and your drinks or, or whatever. Uh, and, and yes, you had really good local musicians. I can't remember. I mean, Diane Maurer, the jazz singer Diane Maurer, who's um, – who I used to perform with occasionally, we talked about how I think there were two that kind of backed up to one another. It might have been 36 Lewis Street and Shenanigans. And she and a very famous Hartford singer named Tiny Joe, who, of course, one of those guys who's the opposite of Tiny, they would just, um, in the middle of a set, they would walk across the street and jump in with each other's band and, and just take over whatever the other person had been doing. I just don't think there's anything like that anymore. And it is too bad because it does bring some kind of, you know, a certain kind of vitality to the city. On the other hand, I shouldn't opine too much about this because I'm, I'm kind of 
First of all, I haven't been anywhere in two years, so there could be a thriving club scene, you know, five blocks from where I live. I might not know that. All right. Let's go to Jack in Boston. Hi, Jack. Hey, Colin. <clears throat> Excuse me there. Um, so maybe six months ago, uh, you a couple of times spoke about the rebrand of your show that was in the works. You really didn't know much about it, but it was happening. And since then... Well, I listen to you daily, podcast or live, and have since your birth, when I used to be in, grow to go to Connecticut. Anyway, um, I, it threw me when you mentioned brand and you, because your show is so wide-ranging, which is one of the reasons I like it, um, that it, it, it seemed to defy being branded. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I, I, there's sort of a lot of ways to kind of understand that term. And I understand the way that – I understand exactly the point that you're making. And it actually – we went through a long set of conversations uh, with, with people about this whole question and the kind of – you know, when people are working with you on a rebrand. First of all, let me get to the uh, – let me cut to the chase. We haven't really rebranded. Ultimately, I think there are some changes we've already made that are maybe hard to pick up just in terms of how we present ourselves on social media and other places. Well, we're, commercials on air are brand new last two weeks. Yeah, we're, do, we're doing some new kinds of kind of second-generation promos. That's something that the entire station is doing. But, you know, there was this other kind of creative get-to-the-heart-of-things process that we were attempting to participate in. And we, when I say we, I mean my producers and the people who kind of, you know, are, are the beating heart of the show. You know, they'd ask us questions, and I kept saying, like, what are some words that would describe the show? What are some, what is the show all about? And I always would say, the show is about whatever the show, whatever shows we're working on right now, that's what the show is about. You know, I mean, tomorrow's show is about clapping. It's about the history of applause, the, the nature of applause, how to clap to music, why the two and the four is preferable to the one and three. It's just a show about clapping. And not for any particular reason, not because clapping's in the news or anything, but because we we want to do it. And and so so much of what we've tried to evolve into is that kind of show, a show that does things that are often eclectic, often esoteric, often almost willfully obscure <laughs> or strange efforts. Could, could I, when uh, you're using the term rebrand, which presupposes. There was an original brand, and I've listened to you from day one, uh, way back when I used to be in Connecticut helping mom, and I had the same feeling. You're too sui generis, which is a term I actually got from you. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, so what was the original brand that now needs to be or is will be rebranded? Right. I think that's a fair thing, too. And I, I don't want to spend too much time on this because it seems a little self-referential. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that, that point was made also, that we were never given a brand in the first place. We've never really had a brand, the entire idea. And I like that. I like the idea that the entire idea of the show is, what are we doing next? Yeah, what are so we do doing I. next? So do I. Um, and, and the other part of that, I mean, there's a lot of other elements to this show, ways. I mean, first of all, thank you so much for your interest. Thank you so much for even caring one way or the other about this. But, And, and I will say that I, I'm, if things unfold the way that they're supposed to unfold, and there's kind of a surprise thing that I think is coming in September that I, I can't talk about yet. Um, but we probably will do a, make a few changes, not 
in terms of the shows we do. We will never, ever, ever, I promise you, change the kinds of shows that we do uh, as a result of anything that might be called branding or rebranding. That's never what we're talking about. The question is, do we do a good, good job of telling the story of this show and what kinds of shows that we do? That's sort of the conversation we've had about rebranding. And also, we've had the same logo uh, <laughs> since we started in 2009. It was... You know, I mean, probably two or three hours work by a very fine a young person who used to work in this building. wasn't really all that young. Uh, and we just we've never been able to change the logo. There's sort of a lot of stuff that we probably need to do that aren't of no there are no interest to anybody, to anybody but us. But but, yeah, the goal has always been to do a show that a would surprise not only the listeners, but frequently us <laughs> to do shows that we are not sure we can do. We are, and to work on shows like we've been working. We always have one show that we're working on that we don't know how to do. One episode that we we're working on that we don't know how to do. At the moment, it's a show about something called Dunbar's Number. Dunbar's Number is um, uh, an idea generated by a, a British scholar named Robin Dunbar, uh, and he uh, illustrated the idea that that human beings kind of only have the cognitive carrying capacity to maintain a a maximum of 150 relationships. And there's all kinds of you know examples to support that idea. Uh, and so we wanted to do a show about that idea, an episode about that idea, but we wanted to do it in somehow that somehow or other reflected the Dunbar's number of the Colin McEnroe show. And we <laughs> other than now having interviewed Robin Dunbar himself, we have no idea how to do this, how to make it work or anything. And and that becomes some of the fun of it too, right? If you don't know how if you do know how to do something, then you can do it and that's fine and you know, I mean, I would imagine management's happy. Um, but we're often much more intrigued by things that we don't know how to do. And this is the latest thing. We don't know how to do it. We don't want to do it the way anybody in their right mind would do it. We want to do it some crazy way. And so how do we do it? And that's very much our brand, I think. And, and this show, this, what we're doing right now, this show where people call in and ask stuff or tell stuff and there's no guest and there's no topic and there's no plan, that's very much also our brand. And we, you know, uh, <laughs> we do something basically that nobody else would do. No, nobody, I don't think anybody in public radio would do a show this way. Neil Conan, when he did Talk of the Nation, he would do something kind of approaching this, but it wasn't quite as open-ended. Uh, all right, so we have to move on here. Here's Neil in Danbury. Hi, Neil. Hi, Colin. Hey, you know, on one of your little promos the other day when you uh, mentioned Bettensport, Iowa, Yes. how did you guys come up with Bettensport, Iowa? I just assigned that to some intern. Come up with an obscure place in the Midwest. No, I don't I don't know. I mean, I wrote that promo. I have no idea where it came from. But yes, there was, I think the whole idea of it was that I was claiming that I, before I started hosting here, I'd been a farmer in, well, Bet- in Bettensport, Iowa. The population now there is 44. I grew up <laughs> just a couple miles down the road from there in a little town called Huffton with a population of 101. <laughs> in, in, in the whole town were all uh, German Roman Catholics, every single one of them. I didn't even know um, there was any other such thing as outside of a Roman Catholic or somebody that was born in Germany. I had no idea what a Jew or anything else was. Right. So <laughs> when you when you left, were they down to 100? Was that like a special day there? Hey, it's 100! Oh, yeah. I, yeah. Well, the reason I left there, because I got drafted. My oh. draft number was 10. I was one of the last people drafted. 
Well, all right. Well, I'm glad it all worked out and you're still here. And uh, thanks for calling in. I don't have a really good explanation as to why that happened. Uh, All right. Let's go to, by the way, the number, if you want to call in, you can call in about anything. You know, and really anything. Bring up any topic that you're interested in. 888-720-WNPR. Oh, I should also mention, I have here, as I always do, I have Mr. Carp envelopes. So Mr. Carp would take too long to explain to who Mr. Carp is. He's a mysterious figure. Yeah, he is a mysterious, shadowy, hooded figure. Uh, and one thing that he does is he clips out things that he thinks are important, and he puts them in envelopes, and he sends them to people. And he, I am one of those people. So I have any number of Mr. Carp envelopes here. They are full of things that he's clipped out of various publications. I don't know what's in them, but if you call up and request this, I will open one of the envelopes, and I will discuss Something that's in there with you. That's the basic understanding there. All right. Uh, Otherwise, you call 888-720-WNPR to talk about whatever you want to talk about. 888-720-9677. And let's go now to Mark and Wyndham. Have we had a woman caller yet? We need women callers, too. So women, call 888-720-WNPR. Hi, Mark. Hi, Colin. How are you? Fine. Um, I've been wanting to talk to you about this subject for quite a while, and I just happen to have the opportunity now. So the thing that I want to talk to you about is Lindsey Graham's uh, relationship with uh, John McCain and subsequently his relationship with Donald Trump. Uh, A lot of people have talked about the fact that John McCain would probably be turning over in his grave if he saw what Lindsey Graham was doing today. And my theory is that John McCain knew exactly what Lindsey Graham was like, and that's why he took Lindsey Graham under his wing, so to say, to uh, manipulate him into doing what John McCain wanted him to do for good or for bad. And you can see that in that as soon as John McCain died, Lindsey Graham was scooped up by Donald Trump because Donald Trump saw the same thing in Lindsey Graham. And as hard as Lindsey Graham tries, he just can't get away from being manipulated by somebody stronger than him. It was very obvious uh, right after uh, 1-6 when Lindsey Graham said, I've had enough. I'm not doing this anymore. It was a fun ride, but I'm not doing this anymore. And within a couple of days after getting harassed in the airport, he was right back under Trump's wing. So I, you know, I don't want, know what your thoughts are on that. I think it's an excellent theory. I don't. Know, I have no idea whether no idea whether it's true or not. But you are right. trying to concoct a theory that accounts for anomalies, right? So let's go sort of back to the beginning of what you're talking about. First of all, we're kind of leaving out an amigo. We probably shouldn't do that. They call themselves the three amigos. It was uh, John McCain, uh, Lindsey Graham, and of course, Joe Lieberman. Uh, They were the three amigos and they traveled around together and they laughed it up and they were having a good time. And and the notion there was some kind of commitment to centrism and bipartisanship. Um, And, you know, I I would say that generally speaking, (laughs) McCain was the most committed of those three. Uh, uh, but, but you know, Lieberman in his own kind of strange way does believe in that. It's, it was hard to see that in Lindsey Graham even then. But I think that you're correct that, I mean, one of the real mysteries of, say, the last six years or so has been the way in which Graham sloughed off some of the things that seemed to define him in the past, you know, some kind of basic 
core principles, some kind of commitment to McCain's type of vision, and and really kind of place himself in the service, in, in the almost bootlicking service of uh, of Trump in a way that made some people think that Trump. There was a time that they went out and played golf after Trump. You know, I mean, Graham, like a lot of people, was critical of Trump for a while. They went out and played golf and they came back and Graham was kind of a different man. And there was for a long time a theory that Trump had something on him. But I kind of like your theory better, which is that he's a little bit more of a weather vane. He's not he's not strong willed. Uh, He needs to attach himself to someone who does have maybe a, a strong who casts a fuller shadow than he himself does, that he's one of those guys who presses the elevator buttons and they don't light up. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I don't know. It makes as much sense as anything else I've heard. And, I th- and, and part of the reason why he may have been in that group of three was because maybe uh, Lieberman even understood that he, he could be manipulated and they could get him to do what they wanted him to do. And then they have a voting block of three at least to um do what they wanted to do and maybe lindsey graham wasn't necessarily a centrist but they made him a centrist by manipulating him um it all makes as much sense as anything else in an era where nothing makes any sense so so I, i salute you uh i can neither confirm nor deny your theory we have to take a break we'll come back we've got some terrific calls and some calls just some calls i don't really know if they're terrific or not you will go to the moon You'll probably be heading there soon Someday flowers will grow there But first you gotta go there Oh, you will go to the moon Ah, you will live in the stars Your backyard will probably be Mars You will ride a freighter scooter And eat off your computer Oh, you Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. No cares for me, I'm happy as I can be. I've learned to love and to live, devil may care. No cares and woes, whatever comes later goes. That's how I'll take and I'll give devil me care. When the day is through, I suffer no regret. I know that he who frets loses the night. I get to pick out the music for these shows. Only for the Ask or Tell Me Anything shows. So so I pick out things that I enjoy. 
Um, all right, here we go. Uh, this is Colin McEnroe. This is Ask or Tell Me Anything, 888-720-WNPR. Is the number that you would call. That's 888-720-9677. We have a lot of calls on the board. Uh, however, women first. Let's begin with Lurleen in Hamden. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, thank you. Um, I'm calling to talk about the early voting referendum in Connecticut that's going to be on the ballot this fall. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I want to make sure that your listeners are aware that in we are one of four states that doesn't have early voting. The other three are Alabama, Mississippi, and New Hampshire. The reason that this is so is because our Constitution requires a referendum to change the way we vote. Um, and so this fall we have the opportunity to move forward so that we can join the other 46 states and have in-person early voting. My particular concern is that I see this as a civil rights issue. Um, a lot of essential workers may have family responsibilities and, and demanding schedules to make that limited 14-hour voting window extremely difficult, um, especially because places like Bridgeport and New Haven have notoriously had long, long voting lines. And you can't take a young child and stand in a voting line for two hours, so you don't get to vote. Very true. I think there might be more no early vote. Eleven was the last number that I remember, and that includes well, the number now is four. It's now so four. We're other still people, other yes, people get out of us. And that, I don't know whether that counts. We're talking about in-person early voting. There are some yes. states also that have early voting, but only by mail. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, well, we're not. We're really not there yet. <laughs> no, no. Um, but no, I, I mean, I, I've come a long way on this, uh, and I think if you asked me about this ten years ago. Uh, I might have had a different answer, but obviously this is the way to go. Uh, it's a referendum. Uh, it's a referendum which would basically support uh, an amendment, as you said, to the Constitution. Um, and obviously you can't do early voting for the early voting amendment. You have to only vote when they tell you you can. Uh, but examine the value your... of, of what will happen in the fall is that then lets the legislators set the parameters on right. how this would occur. Right, exactly. Right now the legislature can't do it. Right. So now, I mean, first of all, make sure it's easy to miss, miss ballot questions. You show up there to vote and you're kind of thinking about the candidates and what you've been thinking about for the last, you know, six weeks or something. So make sure you look and find that ballot question and vote for early. I would say vote for early voting. I mean, in fact, it should be kind of a no brainer. Uh, all right. So I'm just going to go to the top because I don't even know what order to take anybody in right now. Here's Rick in Bethany. Hi, Rick. Hi, Colin. How you doing? Just fine. I've got you on speakerphone. Is this okay? Uh, so far, so good. Okay, very good. I called in and spoke to your wonderful producer who answered my call, and he said that factoids was part of uh, Pardon Me. Yes, that's true. But I loved factoids. Well, it's, I was wondering. It, it's funny that you should mention that. So factoids, yeah. I, let me just back up and help out the listeners here. So uh, at the beginning of the first Trump impeachment, we, um, we first of all, we were under the impression that it was going to happen sooner than it actually wound up happening. And then when it did happen, we'd be off the air. Uh, in other words, these would be all day hearings. We wouldn't be able to go live with anything. And so we made this plan. <laughs> 
<laughs> that we were going to invent a new kind of podcast called Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show. Uh, and so that, that way we could keep busy. We could create something. It would be just a podcast because we weren't going to be on the air. And then if you recall, Speaker Pelosi held the articles for this really long time. So there's like weeks and weeks and weeks. Well, we're building this podcast with the same number of producers that I have for you know anything, which is not very many producers. And we're trying to do live shows and it just turned into this nightmare. But we did fall in love with doing Pardon Me. And one of the things that we did for that one, and then of course we had a second season because there was a second impeachment, uh, was this thing called Factoids, where we would uh, we, com- compile a bunch of kind of interrelated obscure facts and they would we'd be, I think we had uh, the Swingle Singers singing Bach or something underneath it. Underneath it. And it, we had Kion Wolf uh, voice them and it was really fun. And you know, it's funny that you say that because I've been thinking kind of about that sort of thing recently. And so what you're saying, if I understand it, is we should just do that, you know, as a matter of course, say on an Ask or Tell Me Anything show. I think that would be a great show to do it on. Uh, It'd probably be easy to fit in. Right. We could even take some of the Mr. Carp clippings and kind of set them to music, you know, have, uh, have, have Kion to sort of summarize those. All right. Good idea. Good idea. This We've never, by the way, had an edition of this kind of show, the Ask or Tell Me Anything show where so many people were calling up about our actual show. <laughs> um, and and I, for people who aren't interested in our actual show and the kind of the details and the behind-the-scenes stuff, I apologize if that's not interesting. But you know, the whole rule here is that you know the people who call up, they decide what's going to be on the show. Here's Ezra in Middletown. Hi, Ezra. Hey, Colin. A uh, big fan of your show. I've been listening for years. Um, so I grew up in a Provincetown, Massachusetts, very tip of Cape Cod. Uh, for anybody who doesn't know, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And I uh, went went through the whole school system. Uh, all 300 of us graduated. At my particular graduation class was 30 people. Um, and uh, so I just wanted to put a shout out that you know we we get a little a little bit angry when we hear that Plymouth was the first landing place of the Pilgrims because they stayed at Provincetown for 30 days, not a short length of stay. And uh, but overall, I just wanted to promote the the town and and maybe have you guys do a segment on it because I have a lot of good friends that grew up there, are still there, and it's an art, artisan community. There's artists, there's great chefs. You know, Anthony Bourdain did his show down there, and um, just uh, promoting Provincetown. Provincetown has this, I think, really interesting quality that a number of kind of end of the line places have, and the one that I think comes to mind that's to me, very similar to Provincetown is Key West. In other words, once you hit Key West, there's no place else to go. You've got to turn around and leave. Uh, and the same thing with Provincetown. And so who winds up there? It's kind of odd because the profile of each of those towns for a long time has been kind of similar. Um, Provincetown always had, obviously, you know, a growing, growing, growing gay and lesbian population. And certainly, you know, now probably it's defining characteristic. But also had a large Portuguese community. You still get that feeling there. You still, you know, they've got the, the kale and sausage soup and all that Correct. kind of stuff. One of yeah. the best. Yeah. Kale and a linguisa. Yeah, that's right. And so, uh, and, you know, Key West may be a little bit more navy than, than Provincetown. That's also a big element for, for, for Key West is sort of navy. Also, writers, artists, all that kind of stuff. They all kind of wind up there. Uh, and, Certainly in the case of Provincetown, you had John Reed and Eugene O'Neill and all these people, you know, running around in the dunes and stuff. Right, um, right. 
I my only complaint with Provincetown, I'm about to make a really sort of uh, stereotypical Connecticut person's going complaint. Going out on a limb. Yeah. No, it's just hard to park. It's just like really, you go up. Oh, it's desperate. It's, it's really bad. Happen. Yeah, it is really. But it, the more popular it gets, the worse the, pro- the problem gets. Um, right. You know, I mean, it really is. Let me build a parking garage on you, the dunes. You might as well park in Truro and walk up or something. You know, it's like just, you have to park so far from the center of town to get there. Uh, but other than that, it's always delightful. And uh, look, if. If Mark Contreras says we can go do our show for Provincetown, I'm ready. Uh, all right. So thanks for calling. And yeah, I think that, you know, it's also interesting to hear somebody like Ezra who grew up in a place that most people visit, right? I mean, this is, you know, Provincetown is kind of famously where you, maybe you, at the, the, like the biggest investment a lot of people make is they maybe they own a summer, summer home there if they're really lucky. Um, but most people visit for a couple of weeks. And it's always interesting to talk to the people who, are from there. I, it's almost hard to think of a person as being from Provincetown because it is so much that kind of place. So always interesting. All right, here we go. I'm just going to go right down the line here. Here is Christine from Avon. Hi, Christine. Hey, Colin. Uh, talking about places, um, I've been thinking a lot about, I, I just retired, so I'm not going to downtown Hartford anymore. But I'm just really wondering uh, especially with so many people, uh, you know, they say in the knowledge community, uh, knowledge workers are, which would include insurance companies, law firms, what have you, that normally go downtown. That you know, that's kind of been the economic anchor. Besides people going in for games, what is going to happen to downtown Hartford? Well, in a way, that I mean, that's a question that has been asked. Since at least the 70s, um, that's when I first sort of became a journalist and became aware of it. Um, The future of downtown Hartford has been kind of up for grabs for a very, very long time. And the conversation doesn't really change that much. There's always kind of a sense that doom is right around the corner. There's also always the sense that improvement, radical improvement, is right around the corner. You know, and I think Hartford's biggest problem, its most consistent problem, Downtown Hartford's most consistent problem for decades and decades has been critical mass. You know, if you have, you know, 150 people walking around downtown Hartford, it just feels kind of like weird. And you might walk a block and not see anybody else. And that just doesn't feel urban at all. And it makes people nervous. And like, who am I going to run into? Because I'm not running into anybody that I know. Uh, You know, you need thousands and thousands and thousands of people downtown. And that means you need people living downtown. But, you know, more living spaces downtown from art space to, you know, whatever the hell that thing is that sits over the Excel Center. Uh, I mean, those living spaces have been added. And the problem doesn't ever get solved all the way. And certainly at another phase of my life, I was one of the people trying to create a lot of happenings downtown, a lot of events of events downtown. Uh, I kind of aged out of that process of <laughs> at this point. And, yeah. and other people have picked up the torch. I think there always will be exciting people. I mean, I look at what Julia Pistel and her whole crew have done with CT Improv to create a comedy theater in that old space on Asylum. You know, that that is like yep. that's exactly the kind of thing that you do. You need more of that kind of stuff. What theater works is done, um, you know, what the Harper stage always is. But you just need more and you really do need that population. You need that sense that when you go downtown, it's not kind of some weird thing you're doing. You're doing you're you know, if you're walking around Newbury Street in Boston, you just you know, you're in 
a large crowd of people. <laughs> Uh, and right. Hartford never seems to solve that problem. And it has been sitting there dealing with that problem unsuccessfully now, I would say, for 40 to 50 years. Yeah, since I you know, I moved into the area like 40 years ago, um, having worked in New York City, it was kind of like, whoa, yep. where are the people? Yep. Where is um, everybody? Yep. The one thing I've felt uh, that the city, you know, whoever has, you know, influences the direction that downtown Hartford goes. They really need to lean into, and as you said, the creative mm -hmm. and make it a more, you know, make, provide affordable housing for creatives to kind of move into that area. Um, you know, CT Improv is a fantastic example, but it needs to be affordable to live there. Right. And you know, once you get creatives that are in you know that area, uh, and you know that got access to storefronts and and things like that, you know, that's the kind of thing that I think would draw in people you know from the burbs right. looking for something to do and make it worth getting off their couch and not watching you know game of whatever it is you know. <laughs> Uh, yes. dragon, whatever the dragon House of Thrones, is. Game of Dragons, who knows what it is. Yeah, no, let me just say this. Like this, Hartford is having a bigger problem with this and a longer problem with this than, you know, other comparable cities. Providence comes to mind. Um, part of this is the way that the city is laid out and the suburbs are laid out um, and the way in which the kind of bedroom community became really kind of symbolic of the kind of the nature of this area. And you have, first of all, Harvard is like 16 square miles. It's this tiny little uh, um, you know, postage stamp geographically. Uh, and, and there are also these kind of natural barriers. People get home to Simsbury or Avon. They don't want to go back over the mountain and do something. So if you want them to stay in Hartford, you're going to keep them down there for the minute they get out of work uh, <laughs> until you're ready to turn them loose. Because once they go home, they're not coming back. And, and there are just like so many problems like that. Uh, that, but I also I don't want to fail to salute the work of people. The the you know what Paul Brown and then Maurice Robertson and people like that have done with Monday Night Jazz and all the other outdoor concerts uh, that there are. Um, Bushnell Park is a place that is beautiful and thriving when there are people in it. Um, there's a lot that can be done. There's a lot that is, that is done. What Ann Cumberly does with Nightfall, Carolyn Payne, who's you know always involved in all kinds of events with her dance troupe and other stuff down there. I mean, we've got really good people, and I don't know why the problem is so persistent because it should, <laughs> it should be possible to move this boulder a tiny bit more, but it just seems very, very hard. And I think part of it is Connecticut's own population is kind of urban phobic. You know, they like I've been talking about this now for so long and I run into people who they have these strange things that go, well, I would go downtown, but they wouldn't know where to park. Well, I mean, we're parking in one of the parking lots. <laughs> they have big peas. They're very easy to find. Um, but I mean, you just run into people with all these kind of strange ideas or they think Harvard's not safe or, you know, anyway. Don't get me started. You did get me started. We'll take a break. We'll come back and we'll we got a whole bunch more callers and I'll get to as many of them as I can. Confessing that I love you Tell me, do you love me too? I'm confessing that I need you Honest, I do 
All right, we are back, and it's time to say thank you. I'm excited to see Dylan Reyes sitting there in the technical producer's producer technically sitting seat. Uh, and uh, so good to see you back in the building, young man. Uh, and Jonathan McPants is in there screening calls and supplying supplementary information and in every other possible way enhancing the experience of listening to this show. But the big enhancers are you, you people, if you call 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. And I am going to um, start answering some of your phone calls, or at least putting them on the air. Here is Cynthia in Watertown. Hi, Cynthia. Hey, how are you? Good. Good. Thanks for taking my call, Colin. You know, um, I was trying to think of a topic to talk about. There's so many things that are like in the in the top of my mind here but the the something that really got me is i was happy to hear joe biden calling the republican party filled with semi-fascists uh he said the mega the mega influence is creating semi-fascists in the republican party and i was like all right joe thank you so much and the blowback from republicans was oh my god how could you say that blah 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 But, you know, what's interesting is that for years, in fact, since Trump first took office, we've been hearing the Republicans call Democrats, communists, socialists, cockroaches, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, you don't you barely hear about that. It's never a big deal. Oh, it's okay that um, the, the Republicans are saying such horrible things about the Democrats. But, oh, my God, God forbid that we start saying the truth about the Republicans. And I'm interested in what you think about that. Well, I have complicated feelings about all this. Um, One thing I will say is that Coarseness, coarse language in American politics has actually a pretty long history. Gail Collins, I think, wrote one of the better books about this. That you know, we've been name callers and often slingers of vulgarities at one another in, in American political life for a very, very long time. That said, something did happen during the Trump era. There was a coarsening. Uh, I notice it more as a as a columnist for Hearst newspapers than I notice it here at Public Radio. But the emails that I get from people now from angry Republicans who didn't like what I wrote. Uh, I mean, they're mostly conservative people and, and Trumpy kind of people. The They are full of vulgarities. They're full of the F word. Uh, there is that particular designation for liberals that ends in tard, uh, which right. I, is so offensive that I don't want to say it on the air. But of it's course. it's always there. I mean, it is all, almost yeah. always there in the in the emails. And, and and sometimes I'll just write back to these people and just say, "Are you able to express yourself to me without using the f word, without calling me names?" Or I mean, do, like, what would your mother think of the fact that you are writing to a complete right. stranger, somebody that you don't know? No. And you are using yeah. this kind of language. Uh, and, and as I say, I've been doing various versions of jobs like this one since 1976. And I've been a columnist since 1982. And so I have no yeah. I mean, it wasn't that I didn't get angry letters, 
back in the 80s when there was no email. I did, but they weren't like this, you know, and they, they didn't right. feel so comfortable using that kind of language. And I don't right. know whether the solution is to use it back. I, th- I sort of se- I thought semi-fascist is kind of I don't even know what that means. I mean, you know, over the weekend we had we had three memorable you know pieces of invective. One of them was Lauren Boebert, who was talking about um, how people's hard-earned money was going to be used to pay. This is all the tuition forgiveness, the uh, student debt forgiveness oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. program. It was going to be used to pay for lesbian dance theory, which, by the way, I think Ezra in Middletown probably actually had to take lesbian dance theory uh, when he went to school in Provincetown. But, you know, so lesbian dance theory was one. Another one was Ted Cruz saying that the money was going to go to Slacker Baristas, which means such a yeah. great name for an indie band. You know, I mean, the Slacker yeah. Baristas, who wouldn't go see them? And then you had, you know, Biden with semi-fascist. I don't know. <laughs> I just don't know. I don't know that. I don't know what that accomplishes, really. Well, to me, to me. What, what I was hearing with, uh, in the media and from Democrats is squat. Because if you think back, um, and I, I, hate, I hate to be, I have a flair for the dramatics, so you have to forgive me. Mm-hmm. But when you start dehumanizing people based upon their ideology, by calling them cockroaches and so on, which the Republicans have been doing, it tends to um, create... Uh, the sense that these people are not worth talking to. Um, they're not worth defending. Uh, you might as well just kill them because they're just cockroaches. You know, and all of this is related to white supremacy movement and the increased violence that we're seeing, which is based in race. And what I hear from uh, Joe Biden is the truth, because the elements of language that the Republicans are using and the way that they use things are doing things in terms of government is indeed leaning towards fascism. And so we have to call it out. And the only way that we can stop it is by really saying what's happening. So, you know, I get where you're going from. And of course, Lauren Bieber uh, got forgiven for her PPP or was it Yes. Green, who got forgiven. No, all of them. There was like a long, long list of them. All of these Republicans who had PPP loans. All Republicans got forgiven for the PPP, but oh, God, you know, these African-Americans who had to take out a loan with a Pell Grant because they have no money to go to college, but they were supposed to go to college. You know, oh, let's forgive ten thousand for them, and right. it's a sin. So you I know? would, so I would like sort of make, the- I would make a distinction between what the White House did in sort of calling out those Republicans, not using any particular invective, but but you know, here are these people, you know, who are posturing right now about uh, debt forgiveness. Here are the debts that they incurred recently and then had forgiven. To me, I don't know. Like, I, I once in a while. Uh, I'll go back and rewatch the movie The Best of Enemies. Is that what it's called? It's about Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley. And as we know, even with Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley, there were there was at least one famous moment where tempers really, really you know rose and got out of hand. They were they were always on the verge of getting really, really unpleasant with one another. But for the most part, they kind of had fun needling each other and sparring with one another. I mean, they really clearly disliked one another. It wasn't affectionate needling and sparring, but it was also done with some wit. You know, it was done with some effective use of language. It didn't re- rely on vulgarities, except in those one or two instances when. It did. It didn't rely on vulgarities. Uh, they weren't spew- freely spewing around a horrible language. 
And to me, I mean, look, we're always going to argue. We're always going to fight and we're always going to have our differences. The question is, how do we have those differences? How do we uh, talk to one another about these things? And I've discovered in recent, in the past year, I am worse about this. I'm not getting better. I'm getting worse. Uh, particularly in how I respond to emails that are provocative, that are kind of waving a red flag in my face. I, I'm I'm not happy with my own level of response. Some of it is just like my nerves are frayed by the, you know, by January 6th and the pandemic and everything else. I, I'm running out of playfulness. But I think we should try to maintain that sense of playfulness and whimsy and that it, you know, it might be a better thing. I mean, you know, Vidal, I think, would rather put you in your place with great wit uh, than put you in your place by just like shouting some horrible coarse thing at you. Uh, because, I mean, it was a little bit more of a notch in his belt if he just found le mot juste you know, to, to sum you up. So I think that's what I would like to see, a restoration of the use of language in interesting and entertaining ways in order to have these battles. Um, and But the name calling is never going to go away. It never did. Uh, it, it preceded our modern era by a century. Uh, and we shouldn't forget that part either. Uh, all right. So, oh, we're running out of time here. All right. Well, we should just go through these just because some people have been waiting a long time. Here's George from Newtown. Hi, George. Hi. How are you? Thank you for taking my call. I'm calling because uh, recently I think I watched the uh, the, the, the TDS uh, chef versus O'Neill, Connecticut Chef versus O'Neill, about two times, and and uh, I have a, a particular question in that it seemed it's and I've appreciated your shows around it as well, and the uh, thoughtful questions that you ask. The thing that I am most concerned about is the way the judge uh, fashioned the settlement and its effect on the outcome. And that is that it seemed to me that the settlement is in the voluntary uh, participation of people who might have an interest in not accommodating the, 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 the plaintiffs. And it seemed to be at the convenience of those people. And it just seemed to me that a settlement, a, at least a case, that is seated in a constitutional right, uh, that that is a particular way for the judge to fashion a settlement. And I just, I'm concerned that I don't know that that point of view is given very much thought, or we haven't had as much conversation around uh, what it does to the plaintiff, to, to, to the plaintiffs, or what it might mean for confidence in the law when a civil right is is fashioned in a way that it can be accommodated only through the convenience uh, and the voluntary nature of others to to make it happen. Right. So, uh, yeah, before, we're just about at the end of the show. This is a really complicated thing, and I haven't really thought about it for a really long time. But I will say, I do think that there was an effort to create a solution that wasn't worse than the problem. And I think people also remembered Boston pretty well. Um, so putting mandates on stuff like that, um, uh, those kinds of things seemed, I think, like dumping kerosene on a fire. The ultimate goal was to, uh, in fact, 
enforce that constitutional mandate for an education. And so how do you do that? And and ultimately, once again, this is, my recollection is dim here, but I do remember talking to one of the plaintiff counsels at the time. So, and he said, you know, we'd settle for one-way busing. Just, you know, just a chance for any kid who wants to go to one of these suburbs and get an education to go there. And that's pretty much the way that the whole thing shook out. And and it it it's not optimal. It, but it's also a problem that didn't have a great solution. All right, we have to go. Thanks so much for listening today. Sorry for you to you that uh, whose calls I didn't get to, but what can I say? We'll we'll try harder next time. Thank you.